Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. So um, we're all recording in different places today because mm. we have been pinged. Two of the three of us. I got pinged as well. Oh. Oh. We all have been pinged this weekend, which means we have got a little alert on our phones or otherwise to say. I got a phone call. Oh, who did you get a phone call, call from? Uh, just from because it was Remy's bar mitzvah. There was someone in the congregation on Saturday that was a close contact of someone who had it. But now we found out they were sitting far away from us and they had a mask on, so we're not even a casual contact. But for twenty four hours, we thought. Mm. Uh, and I'm a contact from being in a shop for three minutes and. Jesse is a contact for being at the podcast awards the other night. <laughs> so this is the new world order. This is how we live with COVID is that we, an abundance of caution, obviously, if you get pinged, they tell you what to do. So the instructions can be different depending on what your situation is. Mine was test immediately, isolate till results. Jesse was test if you get If you're feeling symptoms. unwell. So I'm being very careful. I could technically be in there with you guys, but I wasn't going to ruin the Christmas party. I've got my priorities right, and I'm not going to bring COVID into an office before the Christmas party. I'm not going to do it. So we're all like, we're all being very sensible. But mm. it's it's funny, isn't it? Because now you're just at any time, you're like, well, I think I'm going to that thing if I don't <laughs> get pinged between now and then. Mm, mm. Do I need to buy an outfit? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Unclear. this is another good reason to rent. I Maybe rent one, yeah. <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome to Mama Mia Out Loud, what women are talking about three times a week. I'm Mia Friedman. I'm Holly Wainwright. And I'm Jessie Stevens. And on the show today, the bizarrely feminist defence of Jeffrey Epstein's alleged enabler and the anatomy of a fake celebrity story. Today, a big Australian magazine had to make a rather embarrassing apology. But first, Mia. There's a story that's been all over the news over the weekend out of the United States, in case you missed it. And it's about a school shooting, a terrible situation. Four teenagers or four children are dead. The shooter is in custody and so are the shooter's parents. And this is something we haven't seen before. Sometimes when these situations happen, you know, the issue of gun laws comes up. But when the shooter is a child, it brings up the issue of how responsible are the parents for the actions of that child. So on November 30, just over a week ago, a 15-year-old American teenager named Ethan Crumbly fatally shot four of his classmates and injured seven in his high school in Detroit in the suburbs. And uncommonly in cases like these, he didn't take his own life and he's been charged with murder and terrorism. And he's been charged as an adult, interestingly. Also uncommonly, his parents have been charged with involuntary manslaughter and they're in custody as well. James and Jennifer Crumbly have been accused of failing to act on troubling signs that their son was about to commit this crime. 
And here's why, according to the New York Times. The handgun he used was an early Christmas present from his parents, if you can get your head around that. And on the Monday before the shooting, a teacher reported seeing their son searching online for ammunition. And his mother, Jennifer Crumbly, when she was alerted to this, did not seem alarmed. And she texted him this, Lol, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn not to get caught. And on the morning of Tuesday's shooting, the suspect's parents were urgently called to his high school after one of his teachers found an alarming note that Ethan had drawn, scrawled with images of a gun and a person who had been shot and a laughing emoji and the words written blood everywhere and the thoughts won't stop, help me. During the in-person meeting, the school officials told the parents that they were required to seek counselling for their son, but they didn't want him to miss school that day and they did not ask him whether he had the gun with him and they didn't search the backpack that he brought. And when he shot up the bathroom killing four people at his school and injuring seven, he got this text from his mum saying, Ethan, don't do it. And his dad, James, heard the news, saw the gun was missing from their house and called the police to notify them that the shooter could be their son. But then they went on the run and they were found at 2am the next day in a friend's basement and have since been arrested and charged with four counts of manslaughter. Where to begin? Jesse, the gun was a gift from his parents for Christmas. Where to begin? There are so many elements of this that are disturbing We can talk all day about gun laws, right? And I think we'd all be on the same page that there needs to be stricter gun regulation in the US. This is going to continue happening. It is like clockwork. You just know that there will be a certain number of children every year that are killed by a school shooter. And that doesn't happen in Australia because our laws are different. And it's extremely upsetting to see how predictable this is. However, I wonder if laws like this could change the culture in a different way, which is maybe you can have your guns in the US. Maybe you're allowed to own firearms and you've got your Second Amendment right. Maybe that's fine. But if you have weapons and they are yours, they're filed under your name, then you are responsible for what happens to them. And if that means that a child in your house picks it up, or a child goes to school and kills four classmates, if someone is playing with it and it goes off, then you are responsible. And maybe that would change how it's looked at. Maybe then you would ensure that it's properly locked up or that you wouldn't even get one because the stakes are just too high. But the fact that this stuff happens all the time, people will have a a toddler who comes across a gun and plays with it. There needs to be culpability legally. And that's why I think this is really important. And the second point is that it also points to teachers and parents not being on the same page. Teachers pointed this out. They knew this wasn't right. They tried Mm. to flag it with the parents and the parents were dismissive of the teachers. They were belittling of them to suggest do what you like, but just don't get caught. If they had listened to what the teachers had said, this would have been prevented. And I think that's just so disappointing. I think it's really difficult to have these conversations from Australia because this culture is so abhorrent to us, right? Like the idea that any parent would buy their kid a gun in this cavalier kind of way. They posted it on social media. The son was like, oh, hey, here's my new baby. They're excited about it. It's just very alien to us. I mean, I know obviously there are guns in Australia and that 
there are plenty of people who have licenses to have them for legitimate reasons. But we do not have a gun culture, as in it's fine to carry them, as we know openly in certain states in America, that it's seen as a, an absolute right. We don't have that. So it seems entirely abhorrent to us, just like recently the other big story coming out of the US about the teenager who shot up the Black Lives Matter protest last year. And again, to us, the idea that a 17-year-old would be walking around with semi-automatic rifles is so bizarre. But I wonder if you do live in that culture and guns are normalized to you and you do have them in your house and it does seem like a rite of passage to buy one for your son for Christmas, if that changes your perception of risk in the same way that the kind of things that parents worry about their teenagers doing here Mm. Maybe drinking too much at a party and getting in a fight. Maybe smoking weed. Maybe becoming addicted to gaming and refusing to leave their rooms to go to school. Like kind of teenage behavior that when compared to something like this is ridiculous. I'm not pretending that's a comparison, but those things are normalized and parents worry about them and they say, I'm trying to make sure my kid doesn't do the wrong thing. But hey, kids, what do you do? You know, they all love this. They all love that. I wonder if there's like a bizarre acceptance of that Mm -hmm. and that these parents who are clearly grossly negligent here at the very least just refuse to believe that their child would ever be the one to do this despite the fact that all the evidence pointed to it in the same way many parents always believe that it would never be their kid who would do the wrong thing I don't know I wonder too that if you look at what he said in those days and hours before he literally said the thoughts won't stop help me And then he, you know, drew and there was a piece of paper that had blood everywhere and he said, my life is useless, the world is dead. It sounds like there wasn't much that would have got the attention of his parents to seek help. But it did make me think, and in fact, I watched Nitram, the movie about Martin Bryant, and that was a very different circumstance where he was an adult and I don't think his parents were culpable in the same way. However, the people around him knew he wasn't okay and I don't think they knew what to do, which speaks to an issue I think that exists in a lot of countries around the world, which is if you're worried about someone who is potentially going to do something violent or hurt themselves or hurt others, you can feel very limited in what your options are because we know in Australia that emergency departments, you know, are full of people with mental health issues and mental health resources are often long-term. So, for example, this school said he needs to see a therapist. It sounds like that's too long-term a solution. He needed immediate intervention because of what was happening to him and his mental state. And I think that that speaks to the need for more emergency services. But in America, the dichotomy of this and the cruel irony is that guns are easily available but no one has health insurance. There's no Medicare equivalent. So forget about going and getting a mental health plan. So it's a very privileged position to be in to be able to seek a gun is more accessible. Yeah. Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move, and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. 
Hey, this is a message from Mamma Mia Out Loud. So just on tweens and beauty, I'm a preschool teacher and I've got three and four-year-old children who will wet paper towels, pop them on their faces and say that they're face masking, just like mummy. Um, so even in children's play for very young children, there is beauty and I guess skincare. Uh, I love your podcast. Thanks, guys. Bye. Today, one of the most famous magazines in Australia had to print an apology to a high-profile celebrity on their editor's letter page. Now, if you're not familiar with media law, and why would you be, if you have to print an apology as a publication and for it to really hold water, it has to have a similar status to the allegation that was made. So that's why this one is printed on the editor's page, and I'll tell you what it said. On the inside page of New Idea Today, normally the place where the editor's letter would run, it said, Apology to Grant Denyer, Shezzy Denyer and Lily Cornish. And it said, on October the 18th, so not that long ago, our media and New Idea published an article that conveyed Grant Denyer was having an extramarital affair with his Dancing with the Stars All-Stars partner, Lily Cornish, and his wife, Shezzy, was heartbroken as a result. This is a key line in this apology. It said, the article was false. Our media and New Idea acknowledges that Grant Denyer and Lily Cornish are not having an extramarital affair. They never had one, etc, etc. We are sincerely sorry. Now, Grant Denyer has posted this apology on his Instagram and he said, please read this. They've admitted that they were wrong. They admitted they made it up. Now, it sets a precedent that it's on such a prominent page. Now, the thing that's really interesting about this is it opens the door into how these kind of stories come about, right? Because the article that they're talking about was on the front cover of New Idea. There was a very close crop of a photograph of Grant Denyer sitting next to his Dancing with the Stars partner, and she had her head on his shoulder and he had his hand on her leg. Now, if you just looked at that picture, if I showed it to you and I said, what do you think's going on here? You might go, hmm, if I was his wife, I don't think I'd be delighted. And that is pretty much exactly what would have happened in those offices when they decided to run that story. Because riding around pat pictures is a really common thing to do. I used to work in celebrity magazines and every day you look at all the pat pictures that come in. The photographer who took those pictures would have said to the team, oh my God, got an amazing exclusive. Grant Denyer, very cozy with his dance partner. Who wants to bid for them? And then you look at them and you make up the story around it. Okay, but Holly, I have a question. Mm -hmm. How is it that there is not a retraction like this on the front page of these magazines every week? Why is this happening now? Because it depends on how serious the allegation is and whether or not the celebrities involved are going to pursue it. So, for example, I saw a magazine cover last week that had Delta Goodrum on it in a wedding dress and it said... Delta's amazing celebrity wedding or something. And I thought for a moment, more fool me, oh, did Delta get married? And somehow <laughs> I've missed it. Somehow I haven't read about this. Of course not. Delta was just in a wedding dress, probably shooting something three years ago. And they've used the pictures because they've heard she's getting serious with her boyfriend and bang, right? Are you going to threaten legal action against a celebrity magazine with all the cost and drama that that entails to say that you're not getting married to somebody that you're living with and probably might get married to one day? No. But how about infidelity? Because people get accused of cheating all the time and there's a picture of them with a friend or a brother or something well, like that. Well, it depends how explicit it is, right? Because 
if I've just got a picture of a celebrity sitting next to someone and I'm like, hmm, Grant gets cozy, blah. I'm not necessarily suggesting infidelity, but this was very blatant. Mm. And clearly, Chezzy Denya and Grant Denya and Isabel all knew that this was bullshit. Chezzy Denya came out straight away and said, this isn't true. They gave context about what was happening in the image and that Isabella just had some bad news and she'd been to stay with the family and there was a whole lot of other context. And also crucially about this is we used to always say the camera doesn't lie, right? We used to always say a picture tells a thousand words, all of those things. As anyone who takes pictures of themselves for Instagram knows, there are many, many frames that make up a story. So in this particular one, you isolate it, you pull it out, it looks like something. Click through to the next few frames, it probably looks like something very different. Mm. And often what they'll do is that they'll zoom in so it looks like the people were on their own, but in actual fact, they were walking down the street with five people or they were sitting Mm. around a table with 10 people. So it makes it seem a lot more clandestine than it actually was. So context is really important. And you're right, sometimes, or these days, a, a picture can tell a thousand lies. There's a lot of effort and expense involved in legally challenging a story like this. So obviously Grant Denyer and Chezzy Denyer have done that before. They've taken up issue with tabloids who've told lies about them before. And they're obviously just done with it and they're going hard. Whereas if there was any risk that what would come out in a court case could be incriminating, you might not do it. If you didn't have the resources, you might not do it. Mm. There's a million reasons why you might not do it. But they did. And I just thought it was really interesting to see how these decisions are made. Mia, you've kind of almost been a victim of this yourself. Yeah, look, years ago, and I'd forgotten it until today, years ago when I was editing Cosmo, and I was nobody, I didn't have a profile really at all, but I was pregnant with, must have been my second child, and, you know, I'd been on the Today Show a bit, so I had, you know, I was very D-list, as I still am, and we went to a kite festival in Bondi, and we were walking around with our son, who was about seven or eight, And I remember it was a really hot day. And then about a week later, I got a call from a friend who worked at one of those magazines. And I think it was one that was in my building at the time because Cosmo was owned then by the same company that owns all of these magazines. And they said, there's a paparazzi photographer with a series of you out walking and it looks like you've got bruises on your arms and they're trying to suggest that you're in an abusive relationship and that you've been bashed. And I was like, first of all, I looked at my arms and I was like, well, I don't even have bruises. It must have just been like fluid retention from my pregnancy that was casting a shadow. I mean, obviously it was not true. Firstly, because I'm a D-lister and secondly, because they knew it was libelous, the editors didn't buy those shots and they were never published. But had I been Carrie Bickmore or Sophie Monk or something like that, they might have used weasel words to imply what their photographer had suggested and publish those shots anyway. So it's that idea and I also know it happens that you get paparazzi shots at a tabloid and then it's like right around these because there is no story because the celebrity won't speak to you but you've got to make Mm. up a story based on the picture. It's like some kind of weird game, but it's not funny. It is. It's like uh, if you've ever done a creative writing class. Or a caption this. (laughs) Yeah, where people are like, here's an image, write a story about what might be happening in this photo. But it has to be said that, you know, I mean, we we talk about paparazzi culture a bit on this show and how Mamma Mia doesn't participate in it. There are some paparazzi images that don't lie, right? I mean, iconically. Mm. So... 
I will never forget at the age that I am seeing the pictures of Fergie, the Duchess of York, getting her toes sucked in the south of France by a Texan billionaire when she was still ostensibly married to Prince Andrew. Now, those pictures were taken in the most grossly invasive way, like on private property, telephoto lens, all the things. These days we would be so horrified. But they also did tell a truth that was happening. So everybody was kind of like, oh, well, that's fair enough then. I think about other really iconic celebrity gotchas like Kristen Stewart having an affair with the director of her Snow White movie when everyone thought she was in a happy relationship with Robert Pattinson and other ones like that where... Remember Brad on the beach with Angelina and Maddox? Yes, Brad on the beach. Yeah, he just split up from Jennifer and they'd made Mr and Mrs Smith together and there'd been denials that she had anything to do with the breakup of his marriage and then it was bang, they were like halfway around the world on some holiday together. And so everybody wants to get those pictures and break open a massive story. So... The desperate paparazzi who's taking a picture of Mia at the beach and going, how will I get anyone to pay for these pictures? They'll helpfully say, look at her arms. Or, Mm. you know, at the moment, there's a big sort of spot the bump going on for various Kardashians. So it'll be Mm. in this frame, if she turns sideways and you squint your eyes and she, you know, you might think she's got a baby bump. And that's a massive, you know, endlessly perpetuating myth. And so the paparazzi are trying to make their images more enticing to the editors. The editors are trying to fill their pages. You're making toss-up decisions about what's risky and what's not, what could be damaging and what's not, what someone might go after you for and what's not. And that is how these kind of stories happen. And Hull, if people are confused about why the next week we might see this same magazine with an exclusive Chezzy and Grant Denyer's new baby and pictures of them at home posing with an interview What's the difference? Well, this is where this gets ethically interesting, right? Is that often the very magazines that make up or embellish stories about celebrities' lives are the same ones that will pay money for exclusives for celebrities. Now, this landscape has shifted a little bit. Social media has changed it a lot. But it certainly used to be the case that if you wanted to sell your wedding, if you wanted to sell your baby's first picture shoot, you would go to those magazines and they'd offer you serious money. And then... The argument would always be that, well, then you've made your deal with the devil. We discussed it, I think, around Karl Stefanovic when after he railed against the Daily Mail and a couple of other publications for how they'd covered his divorce and subsequent relationship, but then gave them exclusive interview about his marriage, about his relationship. And you're kind of like, how do we reconcile those things? And I know that certainly as someone who has worked in this world, and I'm not going to suggest that everybody who works in this world is, is awful. People buy these magazines. They love the entertainment of them. There's a lot in there that is not salacious and filthy or anything. But most of it's fake news, way before fake news was even a term, right? Well, I don't know about most. Some of it is definitely fake news. Some of it not so much. But I think there's without question that certainly one of the defences that used to be put up is that celebrities do collaborate with the tabloid media all the time and that is shifting that ground is shifting you can see that with Harry and Meghan and the way that they've blasted the tabloids about the way they treat the royals and I think that that's because now we're not so happy to kind of victim blame we kind of now understand that it's probably okay to engage with these organizations when you want to and not when you don't. I don't know. I still struggle with that a little mm, bit. That's true. I do too. I struggle with it. And I, I struggle with, I see some influencers or some celebrities post paparazzi pictures of themselves that they like. And I I always cringe at that because I just think, 
well, I don't think you can then jump on your stories and talk about being stalked, which I think is a completely valid concern. And Fiona Faulkner talked about it brilliantly on No Filter the other week. But I, I do think there's a real hypocrisy in then posting paparazzi pictures as though they're harmless and cute when they're absolutely not. But I hope that Grant Denyer has set a bit of a precedent here. Like if I was working at a magazine and I was working today, I think that my perception of risk has changed and gone, okay, well, I could get sued for this if I've got it wrong. And that's why it's an exciting move by him. And you can see even in his post on Instagram, there are a lot of celebrities congratulating him and going, yep, "Yep, this is what we ought to do when they print things that could destroy a family. The trial of Ghislaine Maxwell has begun in New York and her lawyers are taking an extremely interesting angle when it comes to her defence. If you need a bit of a refresher, Ghislaine is the British socialite who's best known for her association, a very close friendship with Jeffrey Epstein. He was a known and convicted sex offender and died by what has been ruled a suicide in 2019. But now it's Ghislaine's turn to take the stand and it looks like if you were hoping that it would expose a pedophile ring or the names of high-profile men were going to come out or if we would finally understand the extent of Jeffrey Epstein's crimes, that's not what we're going to get from this trial. But basically... Why not? Because that's not how the legal system works. So Jeffrey Epstein, because he's dead, basically... It's not possible to have a trial for everything that he did. There's what Ghislaine did, but it's very specific Mm. and she can only be tried on certain counts that are sort of a little bit, they're not quite It's not the main game of what happened. It's that she was just there and saw things and didn't act. Unenabled. Unenabled. Yeah, prosecution is saying, you know, she was the one who booked the massages, in inverted commas, that Epstein got from the young girls and the four young women who are testifying are saying that she was the sort of go-between the conductor the one who told them what to do to him and his powerful friends and she's being tried on six counts which is including conspiracy to transport underage girls to engage in illegal sexual activity which is obviously a crime. Victims say she also groomed them over a 10-year period when they were minors. And of course, prosecutors are alleging that Maxwell befriended the girls, took them shopping into the movies, and that they were abused in her presence. So that's what she's being accused of. And her defence are going with what can only be described as quite a feminist angle. Here is the opening line of her defence lawyer's remarks to the court. They said, Ever since Eve was tempting Adam with the apple, women have been blamed for the bad behaviour of men and women are often villainised and punished more than the men ever are. Essentially, the defence appear to be mounting a strategy that aims to position Maxwell as a feminist scapegoat of the patriarchy. And a Vanity Fair article this week has put it really interestingly. They've asked the question, is this epic trolling or an effective strategy Mm. Mia what do you reckon is this like there are big names from Prince Andrew to Bill Clinton to Bill Gates that are men associated with this is 
is it possible that this woman is a scapegoat and is a feminist argument kind of valid? Oh, it feels very, uh, very spurious and very gaslighting to sort of hold her up as this feminist, not icon, but yeah, as you say, feminist scapegoat. Scapegoat, yeah. Yeah, I think it's really interesting the way that feminism is being weaponized in situations that are incredibly fraught and when women are incredibly vulnerable. So I was reading an article in the Washington Post over the weekend about how the new slogan for the anti-abortionists is empower women, choose life. Mm, and how I does had, that work? Exactly. How does that so work? I had to read it, right, to understand. And the basic premise, the twisted premise that is being made by these people who want to limit and remove women's access to abortion is that because we are living in a, a modern society where women and men pretty much in the Western world have equal rights, women don't have to choose between having a career and having a baby. So the idea that you would choose to have an abortion because you wanted to go to university or finish school or, you know, continue your career, somehow they're trying to take that away as a valid argument by saying that to choose to continue with an unwanted pregnancy will have no effect on your career, which we just know isn't true, and will have no effect on your life. And somehow it is a feminist choice to choose not to have an abortion. It is so mind-bending. It's not unlike how the anti-vaxxers have co-opted the language of pro-choice Yeah, in terms sure. of my body, my choice. And it does feel super gaslighty because mm. they use your language and your politics to try and convince yeah. you of something that is not what you believe in. I think it's clever because I read that stuff about Ghislaine Maxwell and for a moment I went, oh, Oh, that's kind of true, isn't it? It's like they're not going to get any of these big guys. I mean, let's remember, we have to remember that Jeffrey Epstein himself was got, in inverted commas, like he mm. was. His estate has paid out $125 million in sort of compensation to his victims. There is no question mark anywhere whether or not he did this. Everybody knows that's the case and he was convicted of we just very don't similar know charges. The we just don't know all the extents of it. Yeah. So. So when I first read that and read about that statement, I was like, that's kind of true. She is going to go. She probably is going to be the, the one who goes down over all of this. And is that fair? And so for a moment there, my feminist hackles have been pricked and they're on their way up. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, and then. Down girl. And then you read what the allegations are against her from the women involved in the case. And I would say the more you read about this case, the more you understand how insidious and devious it was. Because a lot of the young women who are giving testimony are saying that, you know, they were teenagers who were maybe in a difficult situation. There's a young woman, the first one to take the stand. Her father had died young. She was a teenager whose family needed some money and she was befriended by Maxwell and Epstein and asked they, they just preyed on vulnerable young teens and then kind of twisted their narrative around that it seemed as if they were choosing to do these things with these guys to help their families out. And it's absolutely gross. And there's no question that there has to be accountability laid at Maxwell's feet, if indeed it's true. Of course, a lot of it is alleged. 
And the fact that she's a woman is not relevant. It's not relevant. It doesn't make it worse. It doesn't make it better. It's just abhorrent behavior that she needs to be held accountable for. But is it okay that there are probably a lot of other men involved in this, some of whom's names we may know and many of whom's names we wouldn't know who are not going to be held accountable? No, it's not. But that doesn't mean that it is okay for Ghislaine to get off. And that's the thing. That's how a court system works is that you don't get off because you weren't as guilty as X, Y or Z. And that's what her lawyers are trying to argue. They keep saying she's not Jeffrey Epstein, everybody. Don't get confused. In order to seriously defend Ghislaine Maxwell, you sort of need to suggest that her victims are desperate for money and vengeance and that they're going after her because they can't go after Epstein anymore. There are four witnesses, victims, that are sitting on the stand and are telling their stories. And why would they do that if they didn't believe that this woman was guilty? So, in fact, it's an incredibly anti-feminist thing in a way to suggest that these women exactly. are greedy or manipulative or, or devious. But with that said, I think that we all – I do think that the fact she's a woman sort of matters – because I think she used it to her advantage. Yes, I agree. We all use our subjectivity in life in various ways because we're aware of it. And it's not unlike what we saw with Ian Brady and Myra Hindley in that Myra Hindley, this was, of course, you know, the most famous, infamous um, uh, couple in the UK who were responsible for the abduction and assault and murder of a series of children right near where Holly grew up, by the way. Yep. Um, My local bogeymen, they were. For exactly. Sure. And Myra Hindley, it, I, I believe they attempted to argue in court that it was that she was manipulated, that she was taken along by Ian Brady, and that wasn't the case. And she used the fact that she was a woman and she knew children would trust her to coax them and to lure them into a trap, which ultimately was fatal. It's such an unfair argument because it really undermines the real sexism that exists in so many areas of society when these people uh, did the wrong thing. I have a recommendation before we go today, and it's one that might not be to all tastes, but you know when you watch a movie and then you can't stop thinking about it? Mm, yes. It's one of those, right? So I watched a movie on Netflix on the weekend that many of you might have heard about because it's getting a lot of buzz because it's a serious, arty movie. It's called The Power of the Dog, and it's the latest movie directed by Jane Campion, who is, of course, an incredible director who did the piano and lots of other amazing things. And it stars Benedict Cumberbatch, who everybody universally adores, Christian Dunst and this incredible Australian actor called Cody Smith-McPhee. And I believe it was produced by your cousin, Mia Friedman. It was, Emile Sherman and Seesaw Pictures. Emile won Best Picture Oscar for The King's Speech and he's done lots of other things as well. So He also did Lion. Oh, yeah, he's Lion. A, he's a big deal. What about Lion? Pretty big deal. I Holly, that. lots of people are telling me about this movie, but no one can tell me what it's about. No. All right, so I'll tell, you, you, I'll tell you what it's about. There needs to be a little explainer about why it's definitely worth watching. So it is two hours long. It is slow. I think that Mia would have to watch it in like 10-minute bits if she was yeah. going to watch it. because As a series. Wouldn't I started yesterday. But I literally watched the first 10 minutes. 
yeah exactly this is I think this is how it's going to go for you it's two hours long it's a western or at least it's set in the time of that we're traditionally used to seeing westerns but it's actually set in 1925 it's about two brothers who for 25 years have run the family ranch by themselves one of them is an alpha amazing horseman played by Benedict Cumberbatch um, who runs the ranch is the one that all the staff like look up to but is clearly a pretty nasty dude and the other is his brother who's played by Jesse Clements who is called George and he's a bit more of a kind of schlubby nice guy but also he wants their lives to change whereas Phil the Benedict Cumberbatch character would quite like it if these two brothers just stayed running this ranch sleeping in the same room in their two single beds forever. The George brother gets married to Kirsten Dunst, not to Kirsten Dunst, to the woman Kirsten Dunst is playing. This is the movie where Kirsten and Cumberbatch didn't talk to each other, is that right? Most likely. Yes, yes. So she gets married to the other brother and she has a, a teenage young adult son. And the Benedict Cumberbatch brother is not impressed that suddenly on his ranch this woman lives there with her son. And her son is kooky is a way of putting it Mm. and in the Benedict Cumberbatch I should stop calling him that he's called Phil and in Phil's eyes a kind of effeminate loser who's you know everything he hates in man so Phil starts to terrorize them that's what it's about he begins to terrorize Rose and her son in order to drive them away from the ranch and it's about what happens after that where does the dog come in there is no dog there is actually a dog but that's not that's not not about doesn't have any power the dog. dog Okay. So when you're watching it, it's beautiful to look at. Of course it is because Jane Campion made it and she's, you know, an incredible artist. It's beautiful to look at and it's slow burning, sinister. It's one of those those movies where you're like, something bad's going to happen, but I don't know what it is. And it builds and builds and builds. And then it turns off in a completely unexpected direction, right? So I'm my, into this. My notes are, if you start watching it and you're like, Really? It's, it's been 20 minutes and there have been three words spoken. It's um, if you like a thought provoking and you don't like, I don't always love movies like that, but you know, if you're in the mood for it, mm. it is so good. Like, it's And just, it'll win all the awards, won't it? It'll win all the awards because Cumberbatch in particular is extraordinary in it. And so is this young Aussie, the Cody Smith McPhee. But the way that it turns, it goes in all these unexpected directions. It really is a take on toxic masculinity, what it takes to be a man. There's, there's a real queer storyline there. It's, I just, we, we watched it. And then afterwards, I was just like to Brent, well, what did you think about that? And he was like, I don't know. What do you, and then ever since, I've just been thinking about it and thinking about it, listening to all the interviews mm. with Cumberbatch about it. Like, it is so good. If you're in the mood for like something very... Mm. So I can watch it in installments. Nourishing. Well, look, it's not going to have the same impact. But But I want to see it. I just think I can't commit to two hours. If you feel the need to to be part of it, then yes. It's really extraordinary. It's called The Power of the Dog and it's one of those movies that has got a cinematic release at the same time as being released on Netflix. Mm. So I really loved it. That is all we have time for today on Mamma Mia Out Loud. Thank you for listening to us. This episode was produced by Sydney Peed and the executive producer is Eliza Ratliff. And if you're looking for something else to listen to, then may we suggest The Spill, which is a smart look at celebrity news. It is Mamma Mia's daily entertainment podcast hosted by Laura Brodnick and Key Reese. 
Last week, they spoke about a new book released, which is detailing the private lives of Prince William and Kate Middleton, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. And one section of the book appears to pin the conversation questioning Archie's skin colour on Prince Charles. Take a listen. What I have found most shocking is, I guess, people's reaction to it, saying like, oh, it sounds like it was just kind of said innocently. But even just with the words that were allegedly used, it's not innocent because he tries to say it innocently, saying, I wonder what they might look like. But when he doesn't get the response from Camilla, allegedly, he goes in harder and more pointedly saying, allegedly, what do you think the children's complexion might be? So that's really not unexpected from an overwhelmingly white institution. Like, what I think is shocking is that people don't think it's as serious as it is. You can find The Spill wherever you get your podcasts. Bye! Bye. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.